I'm going to read from Revelation chapter 13 this morning. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Father, as we hear from Revelation, I pray that you would uh, give us ears to hear. I pray that you would give us hearts, God, to understand your word, that we would submit to your word. Father, I pray that you would pour out a blessing on us for coming to spend the day with you, to be in your house on this Lord's day, to hear from your word, to fellowship, to encourage one another. God, please bless the preaching of your word and please protect it. God, please secure for us this freedom to come and hear your word preached and to talk about it openly. I ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. As we dive into this chapter, a couple things to remember. Uh, remember, first of all, that the book of Revelation is apocalyptic literature. That means that it communicates to us in symbols and in signs, not in literal terms. 
Much like when you see Red Cross, you understand that that communicates a vast amount of information with just a symbol of a Red Cross. Or if you see a swastika, that communicates a wealth of information without a ton of words. And so Book of Revelation is apocalyptic literature. It is meant to be communicated to us, and it communicates to us through visions and symbols and signs. Secondly, remember that as we are in this portion of the Book of Revelation, that I understand that this is describing the last days. The last days being the period of time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. Everything in between that time. Uh, thirdly, as we consider the book of Revelation, remember that what we are getting is heaven's perspective on earth. We're getting a view of what the spiritual reality is behind the material reality in which we all live and experience. And so it's important to have those three um, reminders in our heads as we come to this text again today. There's a real force at work in our world, the world in which we live. That force has been captured and tried to be described in terms that the big screen would understand. The Lord of the Rings would certainly describe a good force and an evil force. Um, Star Wars, the, the number of movies there describe a dark force or an evil force or a phantom menace. The force that we are getting a picture of and a glimpse of in Revelation chapter 12 and 13 is a force that makes those two forces pale in comparison. What we're getting insight into is this war that is being waged in the world in which we live against the saints of whom many of us are through the dragon and his two accomplices, the beast from the sea and the beast from the earth. As I reflected on these two beasts, I'm really not sure which one is the most ferocious or the most frightening. I started last week, and I remind us again this week, one of the um, benefits of being a Christian and one of the calls to us is know your enemy. Know it is who we're up against. Know it is what we're fighting against. Know it is where pressure comes from. Last week, we looked at the beast from the sea. This is a ferocious beast described as a leopard and a bear and a lion. It's an intimidating beast. It is ruled by might. It's reflected in the kingdoms of this world that um, that are political and that are economic and that are institutional and even educational. It's the weight of the world's systems come to bear upon the world's people and particularly the people of God. It is overt and it is coercive. But this beast cannot function on its own, as we will see. There's a second beast that John describes for us. It's the beast from the earth. It's a wolf in sheep's clothing. It influences the world and attempts to influence the people of God through deception. It is covert and it is deceiving. And it is these two beasts that the dragon has empowered to wage war against the people of God. There is a sense in which each of, those, each of these beasts may have a particular manifestation in an individual at the end of the last days known as the Antichrist, and certainly the false prophet who will sustain and support the Antichrist. Paul speaks very clearly about a man of lawlessness who will appear at the end of the last days, which might be, and probably could be, the Antichrist. The kingdom of this forced beast, though, continues to reign now, and it has been reigning for the last uh, 2,000 years, and gaining in strength and influence, and it is already becoming a worldwide influence. It is a beast that will not only appear just at the end of the last days, but already has been appearing, as we looked at last week, in many different manifestations. As John says, there are many antichrists. In the same way, 
The second beast will also keep reappearing and has been a re reappearing over the last 2,000 years. And as I say, it may be expressed in a particular individual or institution at the end of the last days, but until then, it is also a beast that keeps reappearing alongside of the first beast. I want to follow basically the same outline that we did last week. Meet the beast, experience the beast, and endure the beast. As we talk about meeting the beast, as we read what John writes to us here, this first beast is not all that it appears to be. It's a beast that comes from the earth. Um, you might recall that uh, when Satan was thrown out of heaven, described in chapter 12, that uh, there was an angel that said, Woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath. So the domain of Satan is now shrunk. It is now just the realm of humankind. And it is a realm that's described as the earth and the sea. And so last week we looked at a beast that came from the sea. This week there's a beast that comes from the earth. Both the sea and the land were considered in um, uh, apocalyptic literature and even Jewish lore as being places that were symbols of evil and violence and maliciousness. You can read in Job about Leviathan and Behemoth who were symbols of that reality. One was a sea beast and one was a land beast. You can also remember though last week I described the sea as a reality out of which um, uh, uh, unredeemed humanity came out of which evil and chaos came the sea is always twisting always turning it's always uh, coming in on itself there's always a storm it's always tossing up muck and dirt the land though gives us the impression of stability we sit on the land and we we, we, we think maybe in the back of our minds well an earthquake might come but we don't think well it's not going to come in our time and so we live with relative stability as we walk on the land and so in the same way, the beast that comes from the land gives uh, the, the, the appearance, at least, of stability. But stability is the foundation of deception. Immediately, as John describes this beast, he says it, is a, uh, it, is like a, it has two horns like a lamb. Well, that's an image of innocence. It's an image of meekness. It's an image of gentleness. It's the image of the kind of thing that when you take your child or your grandchild to the petting zoo, they, they cling to the lamb and they want to touch the lamb and pet the lamb. It reminds us, does it not, that Satan at times goes about like a roaring lion, but at other times he manifests as an angel of light. So the first thing that John sees is he says, uh, he says it is a beast that came out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb but it spoke like a dragon. I think when we think about dragons in, in mythology and we, we reflect on them, often they're pictured as fire coming out of their mouth, destruction coming out of their mouth. Well, that is what we're meant to understand by this second beast. It looks like this, but it's actually that. It's like what Jesus described in Matthew chapter 7 where he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Hypocrites. Appearances can be deceiving. Outside they look like one thing. Inside they're actually an entirely different beast. This beast also has a hidden identity. It's an identity that John reveals through the rest of Revelation in various places. I'll just simply read one and see if you can pick up the identity as I read it. Revelation 19.20, And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done signs by which he had deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. 
This beast is the false prophet that John describes in the rest of the book of Revelation. It makes its influence and its presence felt through religion and through false religion and through false worship. This beast has already made its mark in history. We see that the fourth kingdom has been arrived, uh, has been here since the, uh, the, the ascension of Christ. Well, the false prophet has also been present since that uh, kingdom was established. In Matthew 24, verse 11, as Jesus is describing the last days for us, he says, And many false prophets will arise, and they will mislead many. In 1 Peter 2, 1, Peter says, But False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction among themselves. John writes, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. False prophets in the world false prophets in the church, the second beast. Finally, Jesus in another place writes or says, for false Christs, beast one, and false prophets, beast two, will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. So convincing are they in their power and their might and through their deception that their potential is even devastating on the elect. You see, wherever there are false Christs, there are false prophets. Wherever the kingdom of this false beast manifests itself in a variety of ways, the false Christ is always, or the false prophets are right alongside of them. These false prophets call people to trust in human power and in human institutions and in human reason, in human philosophies, in human resources, in human technology, in human ideology, rather than in God. The motive of the false prophets is to turn away our confidence and trust in God to man, technology, and ourselves. Now we know, do we not, that Satan does not come to us in obvious ways the vast majority of times. He doesn't come to us and say, you know what, I don't think you should believe that Christ is the Son of God. No, he comes to us in more subtle ways. He begins to undermine our confidence in certain things that the Bible says about Christ and about his eternality and about his power and about his present reign with God now. The devil comes to us and he doesn't say, well, God has outright lied to you. He says, has God really said that? Is that really the words that he used? He comes and he introduces doubts into our thinking. He causes us to question the goodness of God, the righteousness of God, the justice of God, the character of God. We see this happening all over our world today and in increasing ways with intensity that we've never felt before. We find that we are being, being led astray by, or wanting to be led astray by those who want to deny hell. And those who undermine who goes to hell and what hell is like and does hell really exist at all. We have those who are now introducing into the church and into our culture various boundaries about sexual relationships and uh, genders that have never been something that has been found in Scripture. But suddenly, over time, Christians and the world have lost confidence in what the world or what the Bible has taught about sexuality and marriage and the boundaries that God has ordained for humankind. We find the teaching about Christ being undermined at this level and that level. 
We under, find that the attack on the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, which we celebrate at the Lord's table, which reminds us that Christ died for us in our place, paying our penalty that we could never pay. We find that now referred to in many circles as cosmic child abuse. We find the teaching about God being hammered at every turn. There can't be only one God. It can't be just your God. There's many ways that lead to that God. You can't trust his word. There are other words out there. Your truth is as good as my truth. At no time in the history of the church has it moved from truth to error in a single step. It's also been a, always been a process, a subtle process, incremental steps to outright error. If I could stop and uh, I'd love to do this, but uh, time, we're all going to run out because I really ran out in the first service. But if this was more a classroom setting, I'd, I'd love to stop and just open it up for discussion. And I'd want to ask you to just um, give me some feedback on what are some of the present deceptions of the beast today? Where do you see the false prophet at work today in our culture or even in our church, in the literature that's being produced? Where do you see it at work specifically in this generation what are we in danger of skewing? Where are we going off the path? Even here at Parksville Fellowship Baptist Church, are there subtle steps that we are beginning to take that are moving us into error and away from truth? What are the issues that make up today's fights? Religious fights in the culture, in your life, and in the church. What human instruments and institutions are being used to lure people away from the truth into idolatry and into false teaching, and into beast worship. You see, loved ones, what we need more than anything is a generation of men and women, boys and girls, who are steeped in the Word of God, soaked in the Word of God, familiar with the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation, a generation of people who sits under the Word of God, not over the Word of God, who comes to the Word humbly and prayerfully and says, Speak, Lord for your servant listens. A generation that is characterized by reading and rereading and rereading the word of God from start to finish. Let me ask just a simple question. How long did you spend in God's word this week? Probably wouldn't take you long to sit down and just calculate it and add it up. Not in books about the word of God or books by Christians written about the word of God or even sermons, but how long did you spend seeping, steeping, steeping in the Word of God, meditating upon the Word of God, asking God to help you discern truth from error. This beast comes to us as a wolf in sheep's clothing, out to deceive. So how do we experience the beast? How does our world experience the beast? How do the people of God experience the beast? This is not like the first beast, overt power and coercion and intimidation. But this beast has considerable influence in our lives. The first one is, is it has considerable authority. Notice verse 12 of chapter 13. All the authority of the first beast was given to it on its behalf, and it compels the earth and those who live on it to worship the first beast. So it has the authority of the dragon, which we looked at last week from Luke chapter 12, is considerable authority. I want you to notice at risk of um, just being off track and using precious time this morning. But notice that there's another parody here. That just as I've been describing by parodies, the, the dragon is constantly trying to look at ways to image, to, to image, to counterfeit the things of God. 
in the Trinity, we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They're all equal, but there's a functional and there's an economic reality to the relationship that they have. Uh, Jesus said, all that the Father tells me to do, I say. Everywhere the Father tells me to go, I go. And so the Son submits to the Father. The Father in, in, endows the Son with power, but the Son does only what the Father tells him to do. And then the Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son, and the Spirit doesn't glorify himself, but the Spirit always points back to Christ, always wants to magnify Christ, always wants to glorify Christ. What do we see here? The dragon investing its power into the first beast, the second beast, the false prophet, is always looking at ways to draw people to look at this first beast and to focus on the first beast and to worship the first beast. This is another satanic parody of the true things of God. But this beast has considerable authority. All authority, all authority of the first beast has been given to it. Secondly, it's idolatry. It compels the earth and those who dwell on it or live in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. This is not something that we ought to just wait for at the end of the last days. This is why I, 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 I have trouble seeing the book of Revelation as only referring to some period at the end of the last days. This is the reality of our world now, and it is the experience of many of our brothers and sisters in the past. When this book was being first written, the Roman Caesars were beginning to gain more and more power and authority, and they were coming to see themselves as divine. They were giving themselves divine names. They were asking or, or um, uh, demanding that people worship them. And even in the first century, you can uh, read about those accounts where the Caesars were given those divine names and, and required worship, and uh, people were uh, required to drop some incense and utter their name and bow before the Caesar as though he was God. And many of our first brothers and sisters in the first century lost their lives because they would not worship the Caesars. Whole towns fought for the privilege of being a representative of the Caesar in that area and build a temple to the Caesar. And so whole towns felt the pressure of worshiping that Caesar, sometimes under the threat of death, if they would not bow the knee. This, restore, this story takes us back to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 3, where King Nebuchadnezzar set up that massive image on the plain. It was an in-your-face image, and it was established on the fane, 90 feet high, glistened in the sun. It had this massive orchestra and wanted to play wonderful worship music as the people gathered. And then he decreed that every knee should bow at the sound of the music, bow to this, worship, or this idol and worship it. And anyone who would not bow the knee to that idol was to be cast into a furnace that was red hot. And you can read the story in Daniel chapter 3 of those three young men, emboldened by the Spirit of God who lived in them, emboldened by their testimony to God and his faithfulness to them who said, O king, we don't care what you do, for we will not bow down to your idol. This idol worship, this kingdom worship has been part of our culture for years, and it is part of our present day reality, maybe not here in Oceanside today, but certainly around the world. In fact, three of the churches, at least of the seven churches that John addressed this book to, were having trouble with idolatry in their churches. So it ministers, it has great power, it promotes idolatry, it has considerable deceptive influence. Notice verses 13 to 15, where it describes the great signs and wonders that this first beast demonstrated. 
in order to deceive those who dwell on the earth to worship the beast and its image. Through these grace signs, it was permitted to perform. Notice again the permission. We've described this before, last week in particular. The beast, the dragon, um, uh, they don't work on their own authority. They aren't, aren't autonomous. They are empowered by God and God alone. I don't understand the mystery of God in this, but I do know that God sets boundaries on evil anywhere and in everyone. And we see that with the dragon and these two beasts. I sometimes wonder if the people of God take seriously the power of Satan. Certainly Michael the archangel did. When they were contending over the body of Moses, he wouldn't say a malicious word against Satan. I've been re-reading re re in the book of Job in my devotions. I'm about chapter 27 now, but I got stuck again on 1 and 2. I always do every year when I come to Job chapter 1 and 2. So many different reasons, but this book of Job is the story about how um, uh, Satan is roaming around the earth and he comes into God's presence when he had access to God's presence. And uh, God said to Satan, so what have you been doing? He said, I've been roaming around the earth and the world. And God says, well, have you seen my servant Job? He's blameless and upright in every way. And Satan says, well, the only reason Job loves you is because you're good to him and you make his life sweet. And God says, okay, I give you authority to take away, do what you want, but not touch his physical life. I say this just by illustration of the power of Satan. Satan then is able to command two raiding parties to come in and destroy various aspects of Job's property. Satan is able to command a lightning storm which brings fire down from heaven and consumes a portion of Job's possessions. Satan is, evil, is also able to cause incredible pain on Job's body, bringing boils, boils on him to cause him great suffering, but God has said you cannot take his life. I've also been reading in the book of uh, Exodus. And you remember there where Moses is tasked by God to, to challenge Pharaoh to let the people of God go, and he's given signs and wonders that he can perform to convince Pharaoh. He goes in the presence of Pharaoh the first time, takes his, the staff of God, he whacks it on the ground or drops it on the ground, it turns into the snake. Pharaoh's magicians come along and say, take their staffs, throw them on the ground, they become snakes. The next thing that... Pharaoh does, or Moses does, he says, well, I'm going to turn this water into blood. Satan's magicians come along and say, I can do that, water into blood. The next thing Moses does is he calls frogs to come out of the ground. Satan's magicians go, I can do that, cause frogs to come out of the ground. At the next point, the magicians are unable to mimic what Moses has done through God's power, and they confess this is the finger of the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 13 describes a false prophet who comes amongst the people of Israel. And God says, if a false prophet comes amongst you and says this, and that happens to come true, don't believe it, because I'm testing you to see whether or not you love me with all of your heart. But the issue is not whether or not the sign comes true. The issue is what is the purpose of the sign coming true. And the purpose of the sign coming through in Deuteronomy chapter 13 is so that then by that miraculous power he can say to them, now come worship these gods. Leave off the God of heaven, the God who has delivered you, and worship these gods. 
So even though Satan has incredible power, even though these beasts can perform incredible signs and wonders, whether they're by illusion, whether they're by trickery, whether they're by magic, or whether they are real, because in the temples in the first day, they did have temples they have found that were attached with strings and pulleys, and they could actually move the pulleys so that the arms would appear to be moving. They had ventriloquists who they would hire to speak so that it sounded like the the, um, the, the idols were actually speaking, and then there were those who had great power. One of the things that I was thinking about when I remember this, um, and I don't like this guy, and I could only watch a few of them because he freaked me out, was Chris Angel. Some of you may be familiar with Chris Angel and the things that he could do. They were just the most bizarre feats of power, I don't know, illusion that you can describe. This beast is the master of delusion and deception, and that's how we experience the beast in the world in which we live. We live in an age that loves displays of power. We can't get enough of it. We intoxicate ourselves with the next latest, greatest exposition or expression of power and might. And we think of these things as more powerful than the act of God in salvation. And is there anything that is more powerful than bringing the dead to life? Which is what God does when he saves us. Is there anything more powerful than God being able to invade the kingdom of Satan, the, power, the kingdom of darkness, and transfer us from darkness and the power of Satan into light and the kingdom of God? And people are mesmerized by illusions and miracles and signs. This second beast is the minister of propaganda for the first beast. Endure the beast. The mark of the beast. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> um, I'll spend a little bit of time on this. However, I don't think this is the most important part of the book, but let me give a go at it because I think this is how we endure the beast. What is the mark? He, he says there in verse 15 also, it causes both the small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave to be marked on the right hand and on the forehead. Let's just stop there for a minute. If you've been following with me for the last two weeks, it's important that you have heard me say, and I've even, that's why I took the time this morning to again uh, express that Satan mimics God. Satan counterfeits God. This mark of the beast, I am convinced, is a parody of the seal of God on the people of God. See, Satan is always looking at ways to copy or imitate or counterfeit God. Recall back in chapter 7, verse 3 of the book of Revelation. It says there, the angel is told, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. Next week, we'll consider the first part of chapter 14, where the, we're standing with the Lamb are 144,000 who had his name, that's Christ's name, the Lamb's name, and his Father's name written on their foreheads. In Revelation chapter 9, verse 4, harm falls only on those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. At the very end of the book of Revelation, when the new heavens and the earth uh, the new earth are created, we have that phrase, that beautiful phrase that we sang in the song, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Now I am not a, aware of a single commentator, a single individual anywhere, this doesn't mean there isn't, I'm just not aware of them, who believes that the seal of God, the mark of God, the name of God is actually written on the forehead of God's people. As Paul says in Timothy, the Lord knows those who are his. Those who name the name of the Lord should depart from iniquity. You see, what is being described by this mark is not a literal mark on the arm or the forehead, 
But what is described is character. It's a way of life. It's a lifestyle. It's a commitment to. It's a way of indicating those who belong to God or those who belong to Satan. It, demo it denotes a spiritual allegiance or ownership. It's not a literal mark. It's a mark or a sign that says, you belong to me. You are mine. It, it's a mark that indicates devotion. You see, this is a lot more subtle. If we walked around and, and Christians had Jesus and God stamped on their forehead and non-Christians had 666 or whatever it is on their forehead or arm, it, it, it would render faith and trust and obedience, even deception in what he's talking about, really irrelevant and unnecessary. Well, it's a lot more subtle than that. The mark, again, says you belong to me. It indicates devotion. It reflects character. And I suspect that part of what we are to understand is that the beast, uh, as does Christ, influences our thoughts. That's our foreheads. And influences our actions. That's our right hand. Sorry to those of you who are left-handed. But, but it influences our thoughts and our actions, the things that to do. The question is not, are you literally marked? The question is, who are you loyal to? Who do you belong to? How does your life display your loyalty? Is it the loyalty that would come with the follower of the beast and the dragon? Or is it a loyalty of keeping the commands of God and holding fast to the testimony of Jesus Christ? You see, every one of us here today is marked. Every one of us, we're marked. We're either marked with the mark of the beast or the seal of God. There is a mark put on some people to escape the wrath of the beast. There is a mark put on God's people to escape the wrath of God. You either have the mark of the beast and face the wrath of the lamb, or you have the mark of the lamb and face the wrath of the beast. Again, the question is, whose mark and whose wrath? It talks about restricted activity. No one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. Some people have wanted to say, well, that mark is the computer, or it's the credit card, or it's a biochip that's implanted in one's arm or one's forehead, giving them access, or it's the barcode in our shopping stores and things that we buy. I, I really doubt it. I think it's practically impossible to have a universal mark now and even with the technology we have in every corner of the world by which you can control what people bought and sold. Certainly it has been and it would be possible for a totalitarian leader in a specific geographic area to be able to have very strict boundaries as there has been times in the past that has restricted the ability of his citizens or its citizens to buy and sell according to certain boundaries or parameters. But I don't see that as ever being a universal possibility. But loved ones, we are aware of the presence of this mark already, are we not? And we are already, even in our little community, aware of ways in which those who are followers of Christ have been restricted to economic activity. How do you say so? Well, for instance, has we not, have we not as a congregation felt this? Just a few months back, our federal government, I'm not saying they're the beast, but our federal government determined that unless we would sign a certain document indicating certain beliefs and acceptance of certain practices, we would not receive grants for summer students. And do we not have a university, a, a well-credited university, Trinity Western University, who wanted to create a law school and would have done it with great standards, but it was deemed that any graduate that would come from that law school would not be able to work in a couple provinces of Canada? We see influences of this ability by states to have econ economic impact on those who believe 
or follow Christ. I just finished a book, a great little book. Why on earth would anyone become a Christian in the first three centuries? It's a fascinating sociological, political study of the first three centuries of the basically then known world. And one of the cases he makes, and he makes many of them, one of the cases he makes is the severe economic hardship that fell upon many people who would profess faith in Jesus Christ. They would lose their place in guilds. They would be kicked out of their families. Their businesses would be taken away from them. They would be unable to work, unable to buy, unable to purchase things. So we see this reality has already existed, and it continues to exist in various parts of the world today. The number 666. I think this is clearly an appeal to gematria. In the ancient world, they weren't able to differentiate or they didn't differentiate between numbers and letter. Rather, the, uh, each um, uh, number or uh, letter of the alphabet was given a numerical value. So for instance, A equals one, B equals two, C equals three, and then you got up to nine, and then uh, I think it was uh, J is nine, and then I'm using the English alphabet. Um, when you hit uh, J, it would be 10, and then you go 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, and then when you ran out of that, it would be 100, 200, 300, and then you make a little tick beside the letter in the alphabet, and then you could start it all over again. So you could reach really high numbers really quickly using the alphabet. But it was a way of, of giving words or names a numerical value, much like we do with numbers today. 1-800-GOT-JUNK. But you can also use those same numbers and come up with a different name because there's three letters attributed to each number on our phone numbers. There's a very famous graffitio in Pompeii that they found. I love the woman whose number is 545. Now, whoever wrote that knew who that woman 545 would be, but there could be many women named 545. I put myself and the staff, you can actually go on, online and you can um, do a, a, a gematric calculator. And you can use Hebrew, you can use Greek, and you can type in your name or other people's names and find out if they're the beast. Um, <laughs> I typed in my name and as many different sort of combinations of it, and you'll be happy to know maybe that I'm not 666, nor is anybody on her staff. The closest thing that I found was Chocolate Lab, which I have a Chocolate Lab, and it was like 689 or something like that, and I thought, no, nah, that's close. If I had had a cat, it would have been 666. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's easy to turn a name into a number. It's not easy to turn a number into a name. As another person said, we can infer much from the fact that a key fits the lock if it is a lock in which almost any key can fit. So it is an appeal to gematria. Still others understand the number symbolically. I, I lean there a little bit. I'm not absolutely convinced, but I lean there a little bit. There is some reason to understand this. After all, the book of Revelation is apocalyptic literature. It is meant to be understood symbolically. When we understand that, the number 666 is the number of man. It's a number of imperfection. It's a number of incompleteness. 777 is the number of perfection. 777 repeated three times is the number of perfection, 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 perfection to the highest degree. 666 is failure, failure, failure. Humans will never be more than human. We will always be imperfect. We will always fail. So it could be of saying that the kingdom is described as a human kingdom, which will never be perfected, never be perfected. To be honest with you, I don't know what the number is. There's no consensus at all, because it's a beast that keeps coming back. There are, and you can go online again, and you can read many people whose names have been worked out to fit as 666. 
and I believe that this beast also is a beast that keeps coming back. And so there could be many representations or names of, of, of people that fit into that gematria and come out with 666. Nero Caesar, I think, is one in particular that often, or that was able to come out at 666. But the problem with Nero Caesar is to get it to add up to 666, you have to use a Hebrew translation, or transliteration, sorry, of the Greek form of the Latin name. And on top of it, you have to use a defective spelling of the Hebrew to get it to come up with 666. So I still think there might be a case to be made that when the first um, Christians read this, they would have thought, ah, it's, that's Nero Caesar. But he's dead now, and so there will be another person. Henry Kissinger, uh, that was a famous one a number of years ago, whose name came out to 666. At the end of the last days, I think there might be a final false prophet and a beast that will be identified as 666. But the beast is not simply a single individual. And to focus on that and to argue that it can only refer to a person that may come at the end of the last days is to miss the incredible truth and critical truth that even now today, people are marked with the mark of the beast and that there have been many false Christs whose name would have added up to 666. I think the important thing I want us to understand is that just as the seal of God is not a visible mark, all of you who are followers of Christ today are marked by God. You are sealed by God, but I don't see on any of you the name of Jesus or the name of God written, but I know by the character of your lives and I know by the desire for you to obey God and I know by your testimony of Christ that you belong to God. Revelation 13 calls not for cleverness, but for spiritual discernment. Not for speculation, but for wisdom, for divine discernment, not mathematical ingenuity. And so from chapter 13, we learn that Satan has a strategy. He's mad, we're told. He is out to make war against the people of God. He is bringing to complete fruition a worldwide kingdom over which he rules, which wreaks havoc in the world and against the people of God. We discover that he operates through two beasts, a sea beast, which is mainly political, institutional, educational, and a land beast, which is mainly religious. The two go together. There, there's almost not any totalitarian reign that I'm aware of anywhere in the history of the world that has not been brought to power and maintained in power by some religious influence. They go together. Satan wants us to leave off Christ and to worship him. He wants us to find not our joy in Christ and our satisfaction in God, but our satisfaction and joy in the things of this world that he offers. Uh, he wants to pull our hearts away from God through outright intimidation or through incredible deception. How do we endure the deception of the beast? I'll say these four really quickly. This is kind of the practical pastoral application of this. How do we endure this final beast in particular? Well, we need to cultivate a healthy suspicion of the spectacular. Don't be drawn by what appears to be miraculously. Don't be sucked in by illusions and by, 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 by those who come uh, professing and, and even demonstrating what might appear to be great power and great might. When you see that kind of stuff, ask, well, to what end? What is the purpose of this miracle? What's the result of it? Where are they trying to lead me? What are they trying to do? If they're trying to lead you away from God and put your allegiance in anything other than God, then walk away and close your mind to it. Secondly, religion. Religion can be a gateway onto a dangerous path. If you enter the gate of religion, it will be not, or not be long before you are lost in a world of deception. 
religion is dangerous. Some of the most basic questions you ought to ask about any religion, and I, even Christianity, which I don't think is a religion, although it's maybe classified that, but some of the questions you ought to ask is in whom or in what does this religion that I'm considering insist that you put your confidence in? You see, religion calls you to put your confidence in yourself. It calls you to put your confidence in human realities and institutions to save you. Christianity tells you to put your confidence in God and in Christ alone to save you. If religion results in worship of anything other than God, it's a false religion. Thirdly, search your heart. Examine the evidence of the choices that you make and the lifestyle that you live. In them, and by doing that, you will discern the extent to which you have embraced the character or have been influenced by the beast. In your actions and in your character, you will discern the extent to which you have been or are resisting or accepting the spirit of the beast in our world. And then finally, we endure by keeping our focus on Jesus Christ and by worshiping the one true God. See, the beast makes war on who? On those who keep the commands of God those who trust the Bible, who live by the Bible, who do their best to build their lives and their relationships on the Bible, and against those who say, Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior, and I will die if necessary for him. That's how you endure, by committing yourself to God's word and committing yourself to God's son. Father, we thank you for your word today. I thank you for the way that it does describe, even if it's in symbolic language and sometimes difficult language, the world in which we live. It helps us understand why it is we face the pressures that we do. What is it that motivates them? What is it that I feel? Why is it I'm being drawn this way and, or, and not that way? Father, thank you for the realization that sometimes the lure that we face as followers of Christ is through just outright intimidation. And we feel that sometimes. We, we're intimidated to speak up in the places that we work, in the schools, in the classes that we attend, in the neighborhoods that we live, even in the relationships that we have. But other times it's much more, much more coercive, much more deceptive, much more hidden. Help us discern, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.